0: Did you just
1: pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since
0: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you... Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, a few weeks ago we did a podcast called Are Circumcisions Really Necessary? Mm -hmm. We talked about male circumcision and promised our listeners that we would eventually do a subject on female circumcision. Yes it's it was you know it's not the top of my list of subjects I'm eager to dive into every week because it seems very um, sad I
1: guess. Yeah, I think that's fair to put fair to put. Well, it's, um, well, it's also a little easier to, for us as women to relate to the concept of female circumcision than getting our foreskin snipped. Um, so let's dive right into it. Find yeah. out what, what it actually is. And I think we should say, uh, we were, when we were trying to decide what to call this podcast, we didn't know whether or not to use the term female circumcision, um, because not everyone refers to it as that. According to the World Health Organization, the UN, um, and a lot of other sources, it's referred to widely as female genital mutilation. Right. But even that term is, um, contentious because some people compare it to Abortion language, for instance, like how you have people who are anti-abortion or pro-life, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Kind of attaching such a negative connotation to it. It if, would be like if you went up to a woman who's going to get an abortion and say, oh, you're here to murder your
2: innocent baby. Right. Whereas if you're trying to approach an African woman and say, you know, this this thing that you've done historically for centuries is mutilation. Yeah, this they
1: initiation, right?
2: Yeah, they don't necessarily see it as mutilation. So they try, some people try to use terms that make it more neutral, Yeah. Like female genital cutting, female circumcision. And usually if you see the term female genital mutilation, it's used by someone who wants to outlaw the practice, which was sort of the approach I came with it to. I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous to me as a woman to subject yourself to having parts of your genitals cut off for no medical reason. You know, when we talked about male circumcision, there were some valid health reasons why you would do that to for cleanliness, to avoid phimosis, so on and so forth. But um. The question is, is there a medical reason to do this?
1: Yeah. And it does seem like female circumcision would be a much more painful process. And this is just me, just my mind. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I don't know what getting your foreskin cut off feels like. It's impossible. <laughs> um, but it, it seems like removing someone's clitoris would be a lot more painful than having a piece of skin removed. Now, I know that there are a lot of nerve endings in foreskin as well, but the clitoris is a bundle of nerves that runs, like I think, something like two centimeters under your skin. And then they might also remove parts of your labia as well. And there's big problems with scar tissue, whereas it seems like with foreskin, it's a much easier healing process. But I guess I'm getting ahead of myself.
2: Okay, You're getting a little bit ahead of yourself because there are four types of female genital uh, cutting that we found. So let's just, let's back up and do basics because what we found when we started researching this is we do have a very sort of Western approach to this topic. Mm-hmm. And it's worth just trying to forget your personal viewpoints and just look at it as something that happens. Not that I endorse it, but we're just going to look at it as something that
1: happens. Yeah. Well, first let's, maybe Molly, we should say where this happens. Okay. Okay. So, uh, it happens mostly in African countries. Um, worldwide, female genital cutting affects up to 140 million women. And that's usually about 3 million women and girls every year, mm-hmm. according to estimates from the World Health Organization. Although those statistics can be kind of hard to uh, quantify, and this is one of the uh, one of the things the World Health Organization has been trying to tackle. Actually, finding out how um, these cultures go about actually doing the uh, the circumcision, and how many women are subjected to it.
2: Right, and it's getting harder to do that because of this. You know, if you see you know a white person with the clipboard come in and say, "Are you practicing this now?" These women know enough to maybe not admit it. Because they know the rest of the world frowns on it.
1: Right. And a lot of African countries have um, passed laws outlawing female circumcision. But that doesn't mean that people are not still doing it. Because this is an initiation rite that has been practiced for centuries. Right. So now
2: what we learned from the World Health Health Organization is that the two big countries for this are Egypt and Ethiopia. Um, But that about – it's 28 countries that are over – that are affected – Uh, when they do it kind of depends on the country and the community. Mostly it's girls under the age of 15. Um, in Egypt, 90% of the girls are between 5 and 14. In Yemen, girls may not even be two weeks old. So it, it really depends on, you know, a lot of factors usually related to these cultural, you know, standards about when they
1: actually do the procedure. So for an idea of how This actually happens, the procedure and the settings, um, I'm going to refer to an article about it in the New York Times, and this took place in Indonesia, Um, and basically there is a small group of women who, they aren't health workers or anything like that, they handle the, uh, the circumcision. And in this, in this instance, it was sponsored by something called the Aslam Foundation, which is an Islamic and educational and social services organization that basically sponsors these kind of mass female circumcision days for girls to come in and, um, have parts of, you know, their, their clitoris and labia snipped off. And they said that, um, Basically, the procedure takes just a few minutes and there is little blood involved. And then afterward, the girl's genital area is swabbed with the antiseptic betadine. And she is then held back to her, held back into her underwear, returned to a waiting room where she's given a small celebratory gift, which mm-hmm. is usually fruit or donated piece of clothing. And she's offered a cup of milk for refreshment. Sounds and that's nice. it.
2: But then you also read, um, situations where girls are like literally held down. Um, sometimes against their will and, and you know, subjected to this mm-hmm. and that there is blood. You know, I found it interesting how many accounts say, oh, you know, it's just like it's just like a nail clipping. That's how much skin they take off. It's just, you know, the tip of a leaf or the tip of your fingernail. Whereas others, you read some of these accounts and they just talk about how there's just blood everywhere. So it seems like it can be done different ways, a lot of different places. And it's it's hard to know which to believe a little bit.
1: Right. Well, and that's why I think the World Health Organization has broken down um, female circumcision or female genital mutilation into four separate categories, um, kind of uh, broken down by, I guess, the severity of the the procedure.
2: So there are four types. Um, apparently the most common form of this, representing about 80% of the cases, is um, taking out the clitoris and the labia minora. And then the more extreme version um, is called infibulation. And it accounts for 15% of cases globally. And this is removal of all external genitalia and stitching up the vaginal opening. In some cases, just leaving you know, a matchstick size hole for everything that needs to come out down there. Um, they may cauterize or burn the clitoris and surrounding tissue, scrape the tissue surrounding the vaginal orifice, um, and introduce corrosive substances or herbs into the vagina to cause bleeding, and it'll um, sort of tighten it up, I guess, so that they can sew it closed.
1: Yeah, and um, once infibulation happens, that doesn't mean that, I guess, once a a girl gets married, obviously, like, she's going to have sex with her husband, and he probably can't put his penis through a matchstick-sized hole, so it's going to rip that open, and sometimes some women will even have that stitched back closed again.
2: Right. There are some cultures where, you know, they they might unsew it right before she gives birth, mm-hmm. and then as soon as the baby's out, sew it right She'll back, back up, up again.
1: Now, let's talk about uh, cultural arguments for, some arguments for uh, why female circumcision happens, because some people think that... Um, there are benefits for women. Um, according to the New York Times article that I referenced earlier, um, one of their sources says that it stabilizes a woman's libido because basically if her, um, genitals are not really functioning, I mean, if she, especially if she's one of the 15% who had the infibulation process happen, um, there's no way that she's going to be able to have sex and people not. Notice it. Um, and then also it will make a woman look more beautiful in the eyes of her husband, probably because he will know that she is a virgin. Mm-hmm. And then three, it will balance her psychology. Right. And that was actually one reason
2: why they did them at some point um, in the 19th century in the United Kingdom. They used to do um, female circumcisions. It
1: was weird for epilepsy
2: and then just for libido purposes.
1: Well, because if you remember from our male circumcision podcast, um, back in the Victorian era, male circumcision was thought to be a cure for masturbation because they thought the masturbation made you insane.
2: Yeah, I would not have wanted to live in that era. No but also some um, cultures do this because they believe that the clitoris is a male vestigial organ, mm-hmm. that is basically like a mini penis. And that by cutting it off, it reinforces to a girl that she is a woman, that it, it instead of taking away a woman's essential femininity, it kind of gives it to her. Because they're getting rid of what they see as this thing that you don't need and that makes you manlike.
1: Yeah. And there have been, you know, anecdotes from, uh, from the different sources that we've read from women who were not initially circumcised Mm -hmm. and would, the other girls would make fun of them for looking like weirdos for having, you know, this in their minds kind of mini, mini penis. Yeah. And in some cultures, they don't take it.
2: You know, I didn't go through all the four in depth, but there is one where they just sort of prick it mm-hmm. and it's like a ritual drop of blood and it's still intact. It's just a, you know, it's just reasserting that you're a woman now
1: by, you know, taking that drop of blood. Yeah. So it really wasn't though until I'd say the turn of the century that Westerners realized that this was going on. And then in the past couple decades, we have seen a lot of effort on the uh, the part of the UN and the WHO to go in and stop it, because in their eyes, this is a very dangerous, brutal practice that is happening to millions of girls every year, and it is leading to health problems, problems with childbirth, and they think there are also psychological problems linked to it. And so they want to go in, and they want to stop it. And that's one of the main reasons why 15 African countries now outlawed in the first place. Mm
2: -hmm. And so there was this landmark study um, in the British journal, The Lancet, that went in and compared the women who had undergone the circumcision with those that hadn't. And they found that the infants of the mothers who had had the procedure, um, you know, it was just dealt a bad hand from birth. They usually had an increased risk of death. There were increased risks of childbirth problems. Um, Basically, the more that had been affected... The more complications you were likely to have. And this was sort of the first study to say, Hey, there's a health reason for not doing this.
1: Yeah. And this was the largest of its kind because in addition to even, even being able to go in and quantify like how many women are being circumcised every year, um, it was a lot harder to go in and actually track long-term health problems. And, and like you said, I mean, even just consider the, the issue of someone who has an infibulated, Vagina, where they have, like you said, a matchstick size hole for everything to come out. Um, there are problems with menstrual blood getting caught up in there. Um, basically their urethral opening is covered up. Um, and so you have repeated urinary tract infections that are common. Stones may form in the urethra and the bladder because of obstruction and infection. Um, it's, it's not, not a good thing. But that's the thing, you know, when I was starting to
2: research this, that's what I knew of this procedure that it, it raised complications, it was painful, um, so on and so forth. And we hear about these organizations just want to go in and stop it. And I think that, you know, from a Western point of view, you know, we've heard so much about not wanting just to please your husband to have a surgery that just, you know, makes it more pleasurable for a man. That um, you know, I expected to find a lot of things about how to stop it. And I did want to point out something we found um, on Tierney Lab in New York Times, a writer named Fuambi Amadou, Um, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but she was a native of Sierra Leone and grew up in America. So she had the same, maybe Western point of view that I did, but she went back to Sierra Leone as an adult to undergo the right. And so she wrote sort of a compelling reason for why it happens. And she says, we're overwhelmed with these images of how barbaric it is Mm -hmm. and that what, you know, the press and people don't want us to know is actually that, you know, even though those problems can happen. They can just as easily not happen.
1: Yeah. Well, she was, she was also making the point that, um, we are not looking at, we're not approaching this from a cultural standpoint. We're just seeing, you know, something that we consider to be primitive and brutal without taking into account that this is an important initiation right for a lot of women. I mean, it's kind of like if, if you think about, um, how widespread male circumcision is for Jewish People and mm-hmm. how, how widespread it is among, among Muslims. I mean, it's a very important ritual part of becoming a man. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's the same thing here. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem as pretty by any stretch of the imagination, but she's arguing that we, we are being, um, very, very Western, far too Western about this and, um, and not taking into account the important history behind it.
2: Right. And so they were suggesting that instead of going to these countries and saying, Hey, don't do this or just have a health practitioner do it. Instead, um, a, a good compromise might be, um, asking for ways in which a female can have a greater right to choose whether she wants the procedure or not. You know, the people who tend to get put in our newspapers are girls who are held down against their will and had the, had the operation. Whereas, you know, if, if a girl really wants to do this to become a woman, that should be her choice. And of course, at Sminty, we're all about a woman's choice.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, there, there are people on, who argue the same thing for male circumcision as well. They say, wait, if you if you have a baby, just let him grow up and decide whether or not he wants his foreskin. And she's kind of saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the most interesting part of that Tierney Lab blog, Molly, was reading the comments because people could not get their heads around this idea that Female circumcision might be an okay thing. They're just, we're just too uncomfortable with it.
2: Right. I, you know, sometimes I'm listening to what I've been saying in this podcast. I'm like, I can't believe I'm saying this. Of course you shouldn't, you know, cut off a woman's genitalia. But I do think that her essay was sort of eye opening. and, you know, we were reading articles and what she said is true. The people who are profiled in these stories have horror stories.
1: Well, and, and I do think too what we, we need to point out one thing that she highlighted. Um, she referenced that the World Health Organization study that was published in the Lancet, mm-hmm. which really got, it really put genital, female genital mutilation, um, into the headlines and got people really thinking about it. And she points out that in the WHO study, not a single statistically significant difference was found between those who had type one genital surgery, um, versus no surgery. And so she's basically saying that yes, there might have been the these differences in infant weight and uh, prenatal prenatal death rate for um, for women who had um, children after they were circumcised, but that the result the gap wasn't that big. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't, was basically it wasn't worth Writing home about yeah, yeah, that we were basically slanting the statistics to write the story that we want to hear, which is this is a brutal practice. We need to go in and stop it and save these poor African women. Right, which. <laughs> Yeah.
2: I mean, having that attitude about anything usually gets you in trouble.
1: Right. And Molly, af- right after I read that essay, I clicked over to a Newsweek article profiling a woman who lived in grew up in Molly and she was circumcised and now she's in uh living in the US and she had reconstructive surgery for her her clitoris and her labia mm-hmm. because she had the infibulation process done and the article even mentions that while they're doing the process they had to take out that um the ash or whatever kind of dark substance they they put into the vagina to to make it bleed. That stuff was still in there um when they did the reconstructive surgery. And and I and I understood what the uh what that cultural anthropologist was saying because the Newsweek article was so like Oh, let's rescue this, you know, this poor, poor African woman from her, from her plight of this, this brutal practice. She comes over here and finds this very kind American gynecologist who does this surgery for free. And, um, you know, it, it I, I, I got, I got what she was saying. Yeah, and you know, the reason, the
2: main reason that that woman in the Newsweek article wanted to do this was to have romance with her husband. She'd had two children, but just did not find sex satisfying. Um But to go back again to the tyranny Lab, the woman writes that what Westerners don't want to consider is that there are people who have the surgery and have sexually fulfilling lives. There are some who have orgasms and there are some that don't. But the same could be said of people who are fully intact down there. Sometimes you have an orgasm, sometimes you don't.
1: Right. And I'm not, I don't think that anyone listening to this should misinterpret what we're saying as me and Molly advocating female circumcision or female genital cutting, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it's just important to look at all sides of the argument because our perspective looking over there might not be the same for a young girl growing up in Sudan.
2: Right. And so um, I did read a few ways of how in communities where they do want to stop it, things that have been most effective have been trying to find another ritual you can do to mark womanhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so just realizing that it, it does have that cultural impact and also showing, um, I was reading that showing males videos about female self-esteem was also helping and that just plays into the, to the issue of choice i mean if it's going to help your self esteem to go through the same thing that you know women before you have then then you're probably going to have a better experience with it whereas if you don't want to do it it's going to hurt your self esteem
1: and um they have gotten cultures that still practice it have gotten better about having actual healthcare workers perform the operation rather than um just random women from the village who you know probably been doing it a long time but probably aren't very medically trained and um some of the articles also noted that younger women are um, more opposed to it mm-hmm. Like the more, basically the more educated the women are, the less they want it to happen.
2: Right, but I mean that gets into the point of if they're educated and have money of their own, then they don't necessarily rely on a man, whereas the man may need this as proof. Yeah. So I think we've given the best overview we can without, without continuing to go in circles about what men and women want, which could take years. Um So let us know what you guys think about the issue. Um, and as always, you can email us at momstuffathowstuffworks.com. I think we've got time for one or two emails, don't you, Kristen?
1: Yeah, I've got an email here from Patricia. And she wrote in about our recent episode on whether or not men and women feel pain differently. And she says, I have two children, and although that was very painful, I would have to disagree in that um, it was the most painful thing that I have ever been through, Patricia, you are a strong woman. I would have to say that, hands down, I would rather go through labor than have a toothache. Having a toothache is horrible. It makes all of your teeth hurt and the whole side of the face it's on. It hurts to drink, eat, brush, and if it's really bad, it hurts to breathe. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most painful, 1 being the least, I would have to rate labor and childbirth as an 8.5 and a toothache on a 10. But maybe that's just me. My labor was, I would say, pretty normal without any complications. Well, you know, that's good to know. Yep. Not having done it myself. Yeah, childbirth might be less painful than a toothache. Because I have had some pretty bad toothaches. Yeah, they hurt. Thank you, Patricia. All right, our next email is
2: from Heidi, who's writing about vampires. Um... She said that she thought it was interesting how we mentioned Edward, Angel, and Bill Compton, but didn't mention Jacob, Spike, and Eric. And I will say we have gotten tons of emails on behalf of Jacob and Eric.
1: Yeah. Apparently well, we... Like some shapeshifters.
2: <laughs> we did not consider that they are the winners here. Um She writes, for me, the latter three are the drool objects, and I had to think about why that was. Partly that they are batter boys, but I think in most because I found that the heroine in each case was more herself with them than she was with the main love interest. Bella is much more interesting and seems to talk more and we discover more about what she wants in life, as opposed to undeath, when she is with Edward. Buffy loses herself completely in an angel, but with Spike, she is her true warts and all, badass, kicking babe. And in the books, Suki is not lost in Eric. In fact, she is much more herself with Eric than with Bill. I think I like them more because in each case, the heroine does not idolize the guy. She sees him for who he truly is. While with the main love interest, it seems more pedestal-like, which I thought was a pretty, pretty great perspective on those guys. So that's what we've got for listener mail today. If you've got something to say, email us at momstuffathowstuffworks.com. As always, check out our blog, Stuff, on HowStuffWorks.com. And Molly,
1: I don't think that you've told them to go check out our articles as well. Also housed on HowStuffWorks.com. Hooray! For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
0: HowStuffWorks.com.